I'm Martin Reeves, Chairman of the BCG Henderson Institute, and I'm delighted to be joined today for our Insights podcast by Roger Martin to discuss his new book, When More Is Not Better, Overcoming America's Obsession with Economic Efficiency. Roger's a very influential management thinker, in fact, rated number one by Thinkers 50, and a personal hero, I may add, in that respect. A teacher, former dean of the Robin School, a researcher, a founder of the Martin Prosperity Institute, and a a prolific author, 11 books and counting, as well as serving on the boards of several major companies. So uh, welcome, Roger, and congratulations on your excellent new book. Oh, thank you so much, Martin. That means a lot coming from you. So perhaps, Roger, we could start off with the uh, thesis of the book. What's the core idea? It's a very uh, provocative title. Well, the core idea is that more of anything is not always a good thing. In fact, even if it's a good thing, too much can turn bad. And so what the premise of the book is, is that we have become so obsessed with efficiency and pushing efficiency, we have caused it to create some real negatives for the economy that I think threaten democratic capitalism. And so what we've got to do is is step back from this obsessive pursuit of efficiency into something that's more balanced in order to restore the prospects for the future of American democratic capitalism. It may sound at first sight to be um, counterintuitive uh, to, to some business leaders. You're questioning one of the foundational concepts of business, efficiency. If the role of business is to create value for shareholders in society and one can do that more efficiently, why not the more the better? Yeah, well, you know, the more has been the better for kind of a long period of time. Agree with your premise that efficiency is by and large a good thing. But what happens is, is if you're going to pursue efficiency, you've got to have some measurements for that to know whether you are getting more efficient or, or not. And what I would argue is that we've adopted proxies for efficiency that make it easier for us to attempt to follow them. And those proxies get viewed as efficiency itself by this process called surrogation. They become viewed as efficiency itself. Pursuit of those proxies has ended up getting results that nobody really wanted. And so it's sort of the blind pursuit of efficiency to an extreme using proxies that are imperfect that have gotten us into trouble, not the concept of efficiency itself. So if I understand you correctly, then you're, you're not criticizing efficiency per se, although you might be doing that too. You're criticizing how we simplistically measure efficiency? Yes. And the degree to which we don't think of there as being more of a system dynamic impact of it. So we measure it improperly and then pursue it to the nth degree. And just to give an example, so leading up to the global financial crisis, there were concerns voiced by many about the massive options and derivatives trading and these synthetic derivatives, derivatives upon derivatives upon derivatives. People like Warren Buffett would call them weapons of mass financial destruction before they did almost destroy the economy. But if you talk to people about derivatives, they would say, ah, no, Roger, they help make the capital markets more efficient. And I'd say, what do you mean by efficient? And they say, well, yeah, they help you narrow the bid-ask spreads on the major stock exchanges. And you know that is, in some sense, a good thing. You'd rather not have the, the difference between what the seller sold his or her stock for and what you paid for it to be gigantic because the stock exchange is taking such a huge cut. 
But if that means that you are completely ignoring the fact that you've got derivatives in value that are 10 times as great as the global economy and could come crashing down and destroy the economy, then I'd say you are obsessively taking efficiency to the extreme and using a crummy proxy for it and getting outcomes that nobody who said they were pursuing the efficiency actually wanted, but they were oblivious to the obsessiveness and its consequences. So I'm hearing two things, really. One of them is how we measure efficiency, relying too much on simple properties. And another is too much of a good thing. And the big example that you kick off the book with is income distribution, a highly skewed and becoming more so in the US and uh, obvious uh, consequences for personal security and, and the economy. What is the link between that sort of headline problem, increasingly skewed income distribution and pursuit of efficiency? How does one lead to the other? It turns out that, and this, is, this comes out of relatively recent work on complexity theory, which is that if you take a system, and let's just say the US economy is some kind of a system, you take a system and apply ever more pressure to it, that addition of pressure can turn what is more of a independent distribution, so a Gaussian bell-shaped normal distribution, which we sort of thought of in the, uh, as the economy producing. You know, a big bulge, we have this view that there's a very large middle class, and then there are some, uh, a tale of poorer people and a tale of richer people, and that's going to be the economic outcomes. And hopefully, if we run an economy well, those outcomes will get better over time i.e. that distribution will move towards higher income. So the poor people are less poor. The middle class is more prosperous. Uh, the rich get richer as well, but not disproportionately so. Turns out if you apply ever more pressure to a system like that, what tends to happen is it turns to a Pareto distribution, which is the distribution uh, Wilfredo Pareto discovered 120 years ago or named at that time where it's called the 80-20 rule, colloquially, where uh, the majority of people don't have much and a relatively tiny minority has disproportionately great amounts of wealth and income. And that's what happens when you take efficiency and say to get more efficiency, we got to keep putting more pressure on the economy. We're going to open trade up completely. We're going to deregulate completely. We're going to have capital markets putting pressure on performance. That's what happens. And so nobody was intending efficiency to do that. But efficiency, in my view, has taken what democratic capitalism needs, which is this more normal distribution with a large middle class that's getting more prosperous every year, and turned it into a distribution where, unfortunately, with every dollar of economic growth, the vast majority of it goes to the already highly rich, and that leaves most Americans stagnating. Yeah, I like the argument you constructed there, the idea that you stress a system, and also if you make it highly connected, so technology and pursuit of efficiency leads to the system becoming lopsided. And then the second part of the argument where you say democratic capitalism needs to be supported by the populace. And if it becomes too lopsided, it could undermine itself. I thought that was very elegant. So we need an alternative. And 
Just before we go into that, I'm just wondering, are you saying that we need this? We've always needed this. Why not now? Or are you saying, look, things have reached some critical threshold. We particularly need it right now. What is the call to action right now? Yeah, it, it's the latter, Martin. So, and that's where the title of the book comes, When More is Not Better. I think more efficiency was better for America for 200 years, 1776 to 1976. And I would say over the past 40 years, in sort of an increasing hyperbolic uh, way, the more has gotten more and more problematic. And we've gone past the point of benefit or optimality. So I do think it's a problem that's recent. And I think the real obsession with efficiency in many policies has been in this past kind of 40-ish year uh, period. And so that's why now's a problem. If I would have been writing this book in 1976, I would have never made this argument. Never, because we hadn't pushed past that point. So let's come on to alternatives then. So there's this thing called efficiency thinking, or you call it machine thinking. So it naturally raises the question, what are the alternatives? Uh, You you focus on systems thinking. One might also think about resilience thinking or social democratic capitalism. But what what is the the pool of alternatives that we have to draw upon if we want to pull back slightly from efficiency-centric thinking? The way I think about it is most centrally that, that we have to start thinking of the economy and, and modeling the economy as a complex adaptive system so that it is more complex than we think. And so when we say we can push this button or this gas pedal, this lever all the way to the floor because we know it'll get us X, instead saying, ooh, if we push this really aggressively, we may get X, but we may get something else because it's more complex than we really know. Two, it's adaptive. So whatever system you put in place, people will adapt to it and essentially attempt to exploit it for their own use. And we better start expecting that. And it is the system. Things are connected to each other. They can't be broken down into silos and managed separately and then added up. And so It's like, if you want a metaphor, right, it would be like the Amazon jungle. It would be like the human body. It works as a system, and it's kind of way more complex than we would like to believe. I thought you gave a very nice summary of the foundation for our dominant way of thinking, efficiency-based thinking. You talked about Adam Smith, markets, Ricardo, uh, comparative advantage in trade, Frederick Winslow Taylor, efficiency, Deming, you know, variance and quality control. You know, I think we were all educated with that, and we we understand that efficiency paradigm. Um, We may have heard of the headline of complex adaptive systems thinking, but maybe if you could give a similar sort of potted description for us, you know, what are some of the big ideas and who are some of the big thinkers in this alternative way of thinking? I would think of a, a few schools. One is the Santa Fe Institute folks, complex systems that complexity theorists like George Cohen and Murray Gilman and Jeff West. There'd be other people, though, like Jay Forrester, great MIT professor who talked about system dynamics and helped us understand that things were systems and they had their dynamics. And then I'd say other people like Russell Acoff, Anatomy of a Mess, who also was dealing in that before it became as, as popular, or Jim March, who tried to understand how organizations really work and really make decisions and what leads them to make decisions that aren't in their own best interest, even while trying. So I would say it's a group of people 
who came at it from various, like an organizational level, like Jim March did, or a systems level like Jay Forrester did, or this chaos complexity theory like uh, Cowan and Gelman and West. And so I think there's mainly these folks, although some of them are management scholars per se, came at it from a more natural systems basis. And I think it's time to, to really apply that with more rigor to the managerial space. Well, let's go there, the application. So I think you made a, make a very compelling case that if you put the pedal all the way to the floor, you may get unintended consequences and you can have too much of a good thing. One question we must ask, I think, in relation to the alternative is, is it yet fit for purpose? Is the methodology mature enough to be betting and, and, and depending on? And in particular, I noticed that a lot of the ideas you're proposing seem to depend upon the idea of balance rather than maximization, efficiency versus resilience, pressure versus friction, connectedness versus separation, perfection versus improvement. And of course, it begs the question, how do you make those balance decisions? So there's a lot of pop complexity theory out there that tells you what you can't do, but can it be turned into a positive managerial science, do you think? Well, I think there's work to do. I would not say it's as developed, especially in the managerial domain. That's in some sense what I'm arguing for, the managerial economic domain. But it's not like it hasn't been around for a long time, right? This is what Aristotle preached 2,400 years ago, the yin-yang of Chinese philosophy, also from that same era. So there were wise people who recognized the centrality of balance rather than extremes from a long time ago. But I guess I would say that there are enough kind of signals of companies doing well by treating their organization in a more systemic way rather than in kind of a simplistic way. So I think about places like Southwest Airlines, who doesn't say my task is to at all costs be the low cost airline. They say, we do want to be the low-cost airline, but what we want to be is the highest employee satisfaction and highest customer satisfaction airline at the same time. And you say, well, how do you do that? That's internally inconsistent and conflictual, but they make that balance a key attribute of the way they manage and have arguably been since inception the most successful airline in their industry and not by a little, by a lot. Or you have the most successful luxury hotel chain in the world, Four Seasons, largest and most successful on virtually every dimension you can imagine. And you've got Izzy Sharp, the founder, saying the only way our employees are going to treat our guests the way we wish they would be treated is if we treat our employees that way. So that's taking this more complex system dynamics view of the business rather than a simplistic view. And so they invest like crazy in employees and have the best employees, the longest serving employees, even though it may cost more, they make up more than that in margins. So there are companies that are already doing it, Costco, right, who says we're going to pay more than anybody else in our industry for our staff, like way more. The minimum wage is irrelevant to Costco because there's nobody who makes anywhere close to as low as minimum wage. We're going to build in Slack into the system, right? And we're going to spend a whole lot of money training, cross-training them so they can do other jobs. And we're going to limit the assortment so that they really understand what's going on in the store. And all of those things together, which may seem like they're all terribly costly to us, 
are going to make us more dollars per square foot in sales than any of our competitors by far because customers love it. All of those, I think, view the world in which they're operating as a more of a system. It's a complex system where it adapts and you want the adaptation to be positive, right? You want employees to say, wow, they make it possible for me to stay in this hotel chain for 20 years rather than the year and a half in most hotel chains. My adaptation to that is going to be to invest more in my career here and to become better because they promote from within and I'll have a chance to do that. Same with Costco. They promote almost every manager comes from the shop floor. And so that positive adaptation you get is employees treating Costco as a place they want to spend their entire career, investing in that entire career. In each of these cases, I think the founders, whether they knew it or not, treated it like a complex adaptive system and manage strikingly differently than anybody else in their industry. Yeah, I think that phrase you inserted at the end, whether they do or not, may, may be the key here. That It seems that you're arguing that we may not have a codified, uniform language and toolkit for this new way of thinking, but there are plenty of examples of it in various guises. Extremely good summary. I think that's absolutely right. I wish I would have had that before I finished putting uh, pen to paper. So the, um, one of the things that efficiency gets traded off against, of course, is um, something that's top of mind for everybody right now, which is resilience. The coronavirus crisis has put stress on not just the performance of the model, but the continuity, the stability of everyone's business models. And of course, different countries and different businesses have fared you know, very, very differently indeed. I know you finished your book before the coronavirus crisis, but Observing the crisis, do you see it as an object lesson in some of the ideas that you, uh, you talk about in the book? Very much so. I wish this weren't the case, but absolutely. Hospitals, the healthcare system had a focus on efficiency that said, we don't need any extra PPE in our supply rooms. And you know that was essentially more efficient as long as you didn't have a pandemic and uh, made you completely unresilient when you, uh, when you did. I think it's not just COVID either that's happened. I think some of the social justice anger comes from uh, what I worried about in the book, which is this sort of stagnation, the sense that you can work hard and not get ahead in America. I think both of those things, uh, the kinds of things that I worried about when I started the project back in 2013. And you see that this, in the sense we've been talking about, the over-obsession with, with efficiency is at a level where we might legitimately worry about national competitiveness? Yes, I think so. Although my worry is bigger for what it's worth, Martin. It's, my worry is about democratic capitalism in America. And again, remember, it was 2013 when I started this book and were worried, and there was no Bernie Sanders. There was no poll saying that young Americans believe that socialism might be better than capitalism. I mean, we're at a point now where the question of American democratic capitalism has been called. It's a bigger worry even than country competitiveness. Will we do as a country what we did in the Great Depression, which is while much of Europe went communist, fascist, or socialist, and Japan fascist in that era, America said, no, we're going to bet on democratic capitalism. There was a leftward shift, obviously, the New Deal and FDR, but it was still capitalist. And that's Actually, my biggest worry now is that there is not that same sense that we have to 
stick with democracy and capitalism. You're proposing quite a revolution here in the concepts we use in business and in how we measure things in the uh, objective function of business. Where would you start if you're a, a regular Fortune 500 company and you wanted to take a step in this direction? What are some of the practical measures that a leader could uh, begin with? I would think really carefully about having multiple internally inconsistent goals so that you don't get wedded to one given proxy. And this is not new. Like if you, if you go back to Balance Scorecard, Nolan Norton, how old is that? 20 years? That had a lot of wisdom to it where you have a balance of things you're striving for. Because if you have a balance of things you're striving for, then nobody's going to say, this is who we are. It's not going to be like Wells Fargo where you say, we are, uh, you know, deep customer relationships, with, which is defined by how many accounts they have. And so you have people going over the edge of that. So instead, think about multiple kind of parts uh, to the objective uh, function. I don't think that's impossibly difficult for uh, companies. I would say be just wary about your reductionism. Yes, it's easier to organize a company when you have silos. But recognize that the world outside you is not, does not organize itself via, via silo. And recognize that you've got to be thinking about the integrative aspect of management. And then I would say just be careful about the way you even talk about Slack. If you're sending the message to senior executives that elimination of all Slack, lowering of all costs is, is a good thing and not saying, you know, we have a complex kind of system to optimize to. And if we're wasting money, let's get rid of that. But that doesn't mean we should grind down labor costs to the lowest possible loss, grind down procurement costs to the lowest possible cost without asking the question, what is the larger system dynamic impact of that? All doable things to just bear in mind for any, any executive. That's very helpful. So in, in a way, you're saying this is not a, some new highfalutin theoretical philosophy. It's actually rooted in the intuitions of managers. It, it's and, you know, it's, it's balancing different functions. It's thinking about buffers and slack and learning and reflection and balance and yeah. all of those things, which, of course, managers talk a lot about. They may not talk a lot about complex adaptive systems yet, but they, they do talk about these things. Would your conclusion that would be that this revolution is quite accessible. We have a lot of what we need to begin it. Absolutely. And, and as I say in the book, as you know from having read it, I only put recommendations in the book, 18 of them, that have already been successfully done, are already being successfully done, or are being successfully done elsewhere. So yes, I'm a practical person, and uh, I would love to see little practical steps in the right direction. And I think we can just walk our way back from the brink of uh, shoving this economy into something that's so unpleasant that people will say, I don't believe in this anymore. So absolutely, Martin, practical, small steps that will get us to where we want to be, not grand master strokes. Roger, thanks so much for joining us today to discuss your new book, When More Is Not Better, Overcoming America's Obsession with Economic Efficiency. It's a great read, uh, strongly recommended. It will be published by Harvard Business Review Press in uh, September. Uh, so thank you very much, uh, Roger. Thanks for having me, Martin. This is very enjoyable. <laughs>